This episode of I Save That Podcast is made possible through support from Volano Vascular. Through the company's family of products, including the revolutionary PIVO needle-free blood collection device, Volano aims to establish a true standard of care that sits at the intersection of blood collection, vascular access, and infection prevention. Learn more at www.volanovascular.com. From the Association for Vascular Access, this is the I Save That Podcast. You have arrived at Season 2, Episode 10 of the I Save That Podcast. This is Ramsey Nasrallah, and what you're about to listen to is the Vein of Contention episode of the I Save That Podcast, which uh, is the result of Dr. Jack Ledun tuning into the podcast archive hearing what we had to say back in, in episode one and uh, and having a, a point of contention, uh, which is why we're now uh, hosting the Vein of Contention all-star panel uh, across the globe. Jack, would you like to uh, tell the good listeners of the podcast what you heard and, and what we're going to talk about today? Sure. I believe it was episode two, season two, episode two. So to start off, I believe that the IV cannula is one of the great inventions of modern man. I mean, with Gutenberg's printing press, the internal combustion engine, the microchip, this device is really one of the great devices ever invented. And it's certainly underrated. You know, it doesn't get on the list with um, those um, other inventions. So, um, but um, the way we use it is certainly a, a matter of debate. So I was listening to one of the podcasts which I do when I'm in the uh, car, and it was uh, season two, episode two, and it was sparked by um, Sir Andy Murray, the tennis player's operation, where he sent in a selfie of his um, hospital stay, and it was included um, two IV cannulas. And um, certainly the podcast, the I Save That podcast, did a great job talking about that, and it lit up a storm around the world and people had their opinions, and it was certainly addressed on that podcast. As I was listening, I heard a couple of remarks related to cannulating the veins in the uh, dorsum of the hand. And the way I took it was that this was a bad practice that should be um, abandoned almost, or that this was a, a bad site for the vein. But then as I was listening, a little bit of conflation got in there about um, long-term IV use, harsh chemicals, anesthetics, narcotics. A lot of things got thrown in. So it hit me that for short um, outpatient procedures or even inpatient procedures, the dorsum of the hand, to me, seems to be perfectly acceptable. By the way, my name is Jack Dunn. I'm a past president of the Association of Vascular Access. I'm trained in general surgery and I'm vascular access board certified. So ba- basically, that's where I came into this, that is the dorsum of the hand, you know, acceptable in certain contexts? And I think in that episode of the podcast, things got conflated, you know, and it, it just got to be that we thought this was a bad site. That's where I'll start. This episode of I Save That Podcast is made possible through support from Volano Vascular. Volano is a medical device innovator committed to reducing the pain, risk, 
and inefficiencies of traditional blood collection practices, while enhancing the clinical domain of vascular access. The company's family of products include the revolutionary FDA-approved PIVO device, which expands the use of peripheral IV lines for frequent high-quality blood draws, aiming to deliver painless, compassionate care for hospital inpatients, a safer practice for caregivers, and a more financially responsible alternative for health systems. More information is available at www.villanovascular.com. Okay, thanks, Jack. The, the dorsum of the hand for an IV insertion for outpatient procedures. That's the first topic on vena contention. We've got a, a panel from the, across the U.S. We've got Australia, Europe. Uh, at any point in time, uh, we, can, we can accept alignment with uh, what Dr. Ladun just uh, proposed regarding the hand being situationally appropriate, or we can have someone pushing back, and that's how we'll, we will roll throughout this, uh, this debate. I'm going to jump in. <laughs> Jack, I agree with you on virtually everything you say. And I do believe the dorsum in the hand is for some situations appropriate, not for too many. I think it's a one off it for um, our chronic kidney disease patients. It's a nice place to go. Um, often we want to, we want to keep the real estate above the wrist um, pristine as much as we can, but um, it's painful. And it's also in an area of flexion also has very, very little dilution from any chemicals we put in there. So given an opportunity not to use the dorsum, I would take it. But for a real short stay, maybe a outpatient surgery, and not even outpatient surgery, it's a painful spot. So no, I'm not, a, I'm not in favor of the dorsum with the exception of our chronic kidney disease patients. This is Judy Thompson. I'm the Director of Clinical Education for the Association for Vascular Access. Okay, so this is real. This is really it. You know, it comes down to is this an okay spot or not? It's certainly used all the time, and that doesn't make it right. During that podcast, season two, episode two, people um, alluded to John Nance in why hospitals should fly, and his quote in there is, "Just because that's the way we've always done it are the most dangerous words in the English language." Yes, um, but we still come back yeah. to this. You know, to this one, you know, say one site, one context to me, you know, just to me looking at it, you know, I vote that it's okay. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've seen it, I've done it. It looks like it works pretty well. So, you know, Judy's bringing up things, but I think once you get into, you know, the area of, inf of um, flexion and uh, dilution, I think they get conflated into the long-term use. I think as you know, Dr. Ricard pointed out, if you want an IV to fail, put it in the elbow or put it in the wrist, you know, no question about it. But we're not talking about longevity for this. We're talking, you know, hours, 12 or 24 hours. So, you know, the, really it's the question. So Judy's coming down for no, and I'm coming down for yes, that it's acceptable for the for these procedures. Uh, I would say that I am on the side of both Jack and Judy being from Canada. Isn't that what we do here? My issue with the hand is I understand the perspective that you're coming from, uh, Dr. Ladun, in, in terms of the type of procedure or the length of the procedure, uh, reason for uh, infusion in that area. But my issue would be the size of the cannula that would be used in that situation. So typically what I've seen in the acute setting is the hand is used. I think it's the easiest and quickest vein to access. 
but it's the size of a catheter that's being used. And when we're talking about an 18 gauge or sometimes a 16 gauge catheter uh, being shoved into the dorsum of the hand, that's where the issue is. If we were talking about uh, more reasonable gauge sizes, like a 22 or a 20 even, which is, is still pushing it in terms of vein size in that area, in that real estate, I think that's where the issues of pain, you know, lo- longer term effects after insertion of a large catheter like that, uh, you know, that's really, a, if we could have the dorsum of the hand with a smaller gauge, I think we would have much better uh, outcomes and longevity of the vein after it's removed. So that would be my comment, kind of halfway in between there. This is Jocelyn Hill from Vancouver, Canada, and I'm a clinical nurse educator for vascular access and IV therapy. So site selection, you're, you're, you're not capitulating, Joss, but you're, you're mentioning that it's important that uh, the gauge of the catheter matters when you're going to use the hand. Yeah, I would believe the size of the catheter for sure. I think we've just hit some key points of contention in this in this whole larger debate. Um, first of all, the dorsum of the hand isn't the same in everybody. I've got great hand veins. Uh, they're not painful to cannulate. They're large. There's a lot of dilution. And my mother's the same way. She's got like six veins on the back of her hand. You'd be crazy not to go there if you needed a quick IV for a short procedure or to you know, quickly rehydrate her or something like that. But other people, it is more painful. And what does that lead us to? What's important is that people get the best IV for them, that they get the proper assessment and the dorsum may be fine, it may not be fine. One of the problems that we see is that nurses tend to default to a couple of areas, and the back of the hand is one. Uh, Our friends in anesthesiology uh, like the back of the hand because it's out on the end of their arm board, so it's really easy for them to see it and to access it, so they tend to to prefer that um, even at the same time as they're asking for very large bore catheters to be put in those veins. I, 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 I'm mostly with, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much agreeing with you, Dr. Ladun. I hear that a lot, that the back of the hand is painful. I've heard people say that the forearm is painful. I don't know that we have the studies that, that really show that. Uh, so I think we have to be careful with that argument. And the least painful IV is the one that gets in the first time, too. This is John Bell. I'm a vascular access specialist from Bangor uh, area of Maine, and I, uh, my background is emergency medicine and the operating room. I would say, John, just to follow up on, on your site, and I'm glad you brought up the anesthesia world. Say the anesthesia, uh, anesthesia team is inserting an IV. I think they should have the context as well. Do, is this an abdominal surgery where we, where we expect the IV to be in for four days or seven days Don't absolutely go to the, like absolutely like take that like that's why i want anesthesia to get their context in here like we put in a good iv in the back of the hand and the patient's having you know a pelvic exoneration hey great you know what i mean like i think at that point we should look for judy thompson's forearm vein or or something else in a in a, in a situation where the longevity is anticipated you know what I mean, to be to be in for a number of days or a week. Absolutely. I, I think just like everybody else in in this multidisciplinary uh, profession that we're that we're talking about here with Ava, people don't specialize and people tend to go uh, to look at it as just a peripheral IV and they tend to just go for what meets their immediate need, whether that's the ER, um, going to some 
janky vein in the chest or the thumb or whatever, or the anesthesia team putting in a rapid infusion catheter on everybody uh, in their antecubital, you know. So these are things that happen, and, and this is what we need to speak to, and that's why this is a great conversation. John, you make a distinction. Um, well, you didn't make a distinction that I heard about the catheter. Like you said, you have great veins in your hand, and so does your mom, and it's a great place to go. Would you want that catheter in for three days, for five days? Would it stay for five days? I, I absolutely would not want that for, for multiple days. Um, again, I, I'm agreeing with Dr. Ladun. And if I was having an endoscopy procedure, that's probably a great place for me to have an IV. If I'm in the ER and need to be rehydrated, that's probably not a bad place to be. If I'm getting admitted to the hospital, I absolutely, for me, for my mom, for anybody else, I want that, I want that nice forearm, mid-forearm vein that's, that can be uh, well-secured and that can last for days and weeks if needed. What about John, for a wait. propofol infusion? Do you think that vein in the back of the hand has enough dilution to not toast the intima? I, I would say that um, as an OR nurse, propofol, it's a matter of how you give it. If you just hook up a 20 mil syringe of propofol and you blast that right into somebody's vein, <laughs> it really doesn't matter how big that vein is or where it is. Um, you know, if you yeah. run it nicely in an infusion and you and you go slow and, and uh, give a little bit of lidocaine first to kind of numb things up, you know, that doesn't change any chemical problems, but it changes right. pain perception. But I, yeah, I, I think, I think that for the amount of propofol that's usually used in the OR, I, yes, I think if there's a, again, it's catheter vessel ratio, right? It's dilution. It's, mm -hmm. if it's a big vein, medicine in, I'm fine with that. But um, I just want to go back to the dilution. Dilution and catheter vein ratio are not, the, obviously not the same thing. So if we think about the blood return that we get from our fingertips that are kind of passing through the dorsum of our hand, that dilutional factor is minuscule. So I'm just, I'm staying on my side of no, but um, <laughs> I love you guys that have, have the, the opposite view. Well, let, let me ask you a quick question to Jack. Uh, yeah. Cause John mentioned he was, he was an OR nurse and let's go back to, to episode two. What about using the dorsum of the hand for say a professional tennis player? who's having hip resurfacing surgery? Well, then you get into the special context of singer that's getting parathyroid surgery or somebody that uses his hand um, for his work. You would certainly try, you know, you certainly discuss it with that person. Whereas I think the um, chance of a significant injury uh, to his hand is low. I would try to not use his dominant hand for just common sense purposes. Sure. Um, now, one of the things with John's, I think, question was leading toward this. In the, emer in the emergency department, John, the philosophy of we'll get something in and they'll fix it upstairs. This is something I've been exposed to all of my career. Right. The you know, gap between the, insertion the idea, and then care and maintenance. Well, it's, it's no, it's the idea that the emergency department will do something that uh, the word is escaping me that that is suitable for the moment for them. Then when the person gets upstairs, they'll fix it. They'll do. They'll put in something different upstairs. In other words, we're going to flow the patient out of our emergency department, whatever it takes. Like that seems to be, you know, like the thing in a lot of hospitals to get the patients out of the emergency department. And like, we'll do something expedient for us. That was the word I was searching for. 
but then you guys can you guys with all the time in the world can fix it upstairs personally i think that's a general mistake in this world of venus depletion that we should not go down that road generally speaking and of course the er people always bring out this patient was going to die in the next 90 seconds you know if you're going to die in the next 90 seconds i don't care what you do certainly don't wear gloves you know, I don't care what you're going to do, but for most patients, this idea of like, we'll fix it upstairs, I think should be re-looked at. Absolutely. And that's, that's what Great. I've been, been speaking on. In the emergency department, we tend to say, well, it's an emergency. Well, there's a very, actually a very small number of patients that are actual emergencies that are going to die in the next 90 seconds. And everybody else, we have time. We don't have all the time in the world, but we have time to figure it out. And this is what my work has been, is how do we do this better? And I still see all the time, patient with, a, with an IV in the antecubital space and 57 other great sites on their arm. So don't tell me it was an emergency and, and that that was the only place you could go and you didn't have time to look at anything else. You just didn't look at anything else. And so that's the... Uh, collegial discussion that we need to have with our uh, friends in the ER. Yes. Uh, the other challenge also is that, particularly in Australia, we don't have dedicated um, IV teams, and I know you don't always um, as well in the, in the States, but sometimes the skill set down in the emergency department is actually better than what we have in the wards. So those cannulas don't get replaced as quickly as what they should or what they're expected to get replaced. Talk about replacing a little bit, Nicole. Well, well, I just know from my experience and following cannulas that have come from the emergency department, they do tend to dwell just as long as those ones that are put in in the wards. Um, they're not routinely always replaced, um, nor probably should be. Um, but yes, we do have that problem, just like I'm, I'm sure you do, that they are getting placed in the hand in the cubital fossa. Let's talk about the other side of this issue with the ER, uh, which is another area that I've worked in. Our, our, our ER people, in their defence, don't always have the tools that they need to make those other choices or to get those lines that, that they can't get outside of the antecubital or, 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 or an area of flexion. And so we need, to, we need to push out into the ER good training um, about how to use ultrasound, how to do uh, site selection, um, and, and we need more uh, emergency vascular access specialists. Give them the tools to do what's right we need to convince them, first of all, that, that this is something that they need and it is what's right for the patient. In our community, there's been a lot of, traditionally, there's been a lot of people that have talked down or talked about what the ER is doing. And as I've talked to people, uh, just my experience, a lot of people don't even want to mess with going to the ER. And that's something I think that we need to address as a, as a community that's passionate about vessel preservation. I just want to clarify, I think that the cannulas that are placed in IV uh, in the emergency department, they are very good inserters. They are particularly in Queensland and they do have access to ultrasound where we don't particularly in the, um, in the wards. What I see uh, entirely too much is in the hand does come from the emergency room. In fact, I just saw the other day a 14-gauge in the dorsum. And I'm not sure how effective that uh, site would be, even, even with a 14-gauge. Like Judy was talking about the catheter-vein ratio and the dilution. There's no, there's no dilution when you put that large a catheter in the dorsum of the hand. Those veins are just too small. 
And then to what Nicole said, when they get to the floor, it's a little bit different here. But yes, I think they, in the, in the emergency room, they do what they have to do and they think they're doing the best thing for the patient and it, it'll get sorted out when they get to the unit or to the ward. And that doesn't happen because this particular ID that I'm talking about stayed in uh, despite my urging to remove it for several days and for, with no no need for it whatsoever. So that, that type of thing really needs to be addressed and that's what I'm uh, attempting to do where, where I work. This is Sheila Hale and I, I'm from Austin, Texas, and I am a CLAPSI prevention coordinator at a large hospital system. Sheila, just to jump in, I think that any patient that requires a 14-gauge um, cannula is seriously ill. Certainly, I, I, you know, in, in my humble experience, we don't put in these devices in patients that don't have a, seri a serious condition or a potential serious condition that would require rapid infusion of whatever. So I would, in a case like this, if it's not an, you know, a true, you know, a true emergency, time critical emergency, that the insurer mm -hmm. should look someplace else. If the patient, so, you know, we're saying the patient's sick enough to require a very large cannula, then we should look, I believe, in this patient for a, a preferred site. Like maybe an IO. Well, if, if time I'm, is critical, but I mean, if if you've got the time to look at the forearm vein, or um, like, why don't we talk about sites in this situation where somebody's going to require a large bore cannula? What would be the appropriate sites um, to look at? I would be willing to bet that that's basically the the patient had a large vein, and somebody thought, you know, I can wedge a 14 into that. I mean, that's kind of the thinking that goes on a lot. Again, in, in my experience, a lot of nurses, uh, even uh, anesthesiologists and, and other doctors don't understand the infusion uh, rates for these various catheters. Uh, my good friend, Don, Dr. Jonathan Busco, you know, has done a great job of talking about that two 20-gauge IVs um, are probably better than that 14 gauge, especially since they're going into different veins. So you automatically have more dilution of anything that you're putting in. But 220s, you can do six liters an hour through 220s. I mean, who who is getting more than that in resuscitation? If they're getting more than that, they probably need a cordis, right, Dr. Ledon? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. they need a thoracotomy or something. Yeah. So I think that would be the ideal is if we could kind of change the conversation, especially with physicians and uh, maybe in the OR to two 20 gauges back to the catheter vein ratio, you know, uh, instead of a 14 gauge or even two 18 gauges, or sometimes we see two 14 gauges. And I think really from my perspective as an educator is trying to teach and train nurses and some physicians, some residents, which I'm responsible for, it's especially when they're learning in that, you know, trying to gain competence because we can teach all the theory and, and show them all the evidence and talk about patient satisfaction and pain scales. But really, when it comes right down to it and, and you have a new staff member, a new clinician that may have started IVs but is dealing with a new type of catheter and we're just going for first six success, you know, sometimes the dorsum of the hand will, will be applicable. But what we need to teach, my focus is really on, on confidence and competence at going for a better vein and, and, and also to John's point, dealing with first six success. I think that's very important. 
and in training and education and on the spot training when you've actually got a patient there. We're not talking about a vein pad, you know, going in with that 20 gauge. And if we could change that conversation to, it doesn't have to be a 14 gauge. It's kind of, there's so many angles here that we have to deal with. That's that's a great, great point. You're making these quick decisions, Jocelyn, situationally. And we're talking about the emergency department was mentioned earlier. Let's transition to that, uh, that vein of contention. IV insertion in the, in the ED during a blood sample when admission of the patient is unsure. The site specificity, we just talked about gauges. What, uh, what does this panel think? Let me jump in on that since I, this is kind of me and my background. So I, what I would do personally is I, I'm certainly going to look at this patient and, and try to ask myself, what's the chances that they're getting admitted? If you're 60 years old and you're having chest pain, there's a high chance that you're getting admitted, right? So I'm, I'm going to try to make sure I get that IV in that is going to be good for you for three or four days if that's how long you stay. If you have abdominal pain. If, if you're 20 years old and you're, you've been vomiting for six hours and you think you're dehydrated and we're probably going to hydrate you and send you out, then yeah, I'm a little less picky. Again, I, if I was training somebody, I would talk with them about um, optimal site selection. I would talk to them about what Jocelyn was just saying and what we were talking about, about um, we don't need an 18-gauge catheter for simple rehydration. Um, in the ER, we tend to go to 18s and 20s. A 22 probably will get us plenty of hydration in that young person that, that just needs some Zofran and some fluids. One of the issues, let me just kind of bridge from our previous discussion that I've seen too, is um, doctors sometimes are not really up on this stuff. And so I've seen doctors say, uh, this is a GI bleed, um, you know, which again is a high likelihood of admission. Um, I would say nearly 100%. And the doctor may order, uh, I want uh, bilateral 18 gauges in the antecubital. I've seen that specific of an order. And I know that that's not what this patient needs. And yet it's very difficult for, for a nurse with less experience or a newer nurse to, to stand up to that and say, this is not what's best for the patient and, and do something different. A concept that's been raised a little bit, um, and I, I like to hear it's like, we're bringing up the concept of um, optimal location. We're concluding that the dorsum of the hand is not the optimal location except in a specific set and not in Judy Thompson's hands. But why don't we discuss <laughs> what are the optimal sites that we should be looking at? And maybe we'll have um, one, two, three, or four. And it's we're saying it's not the dorsum of the hand. It's not the antecubital fossa. So what are we going to say recommend that people look at for the optimal location in the in the general situation we're describing, say an emergency department patient that may be a GI bleeder or going to require admission, what would be the optimal location to look at in that patient? My friend Judy, since I disagreed with her earlier, I'm going to wholeheartedly come in, and I I think that Judy and I would agree that the forearm is the the number one optimal location. Um, again, this is the the problem, uh, and we can continue on with this ranking of things. But let me throw in, this is why we need vascular access specialists, and this is why we need better education, because this is it's because not everybody has great veins in the forearm. And some people are going to, a lot of people need ultrasound to find those optimal veins. Um, they may have a great anticube that's popping out, but they don't have anything visible in their forearm. 
And so this is why we need better education. We need access to vascular access specialists in every hospital in the country. And we need uh, people that can train the nurse generalist to do a better job with IV access. But I, I would say number one uh, optimal location, speaking very broadly and generally, is the forearm. See, that to me, that's good information. That conveys what we're trying to convey to, to people to look at these sites. If they don't have the skill set to do an ultrasound guided, then either, you know, hopefully they'll gain that, but not reflexly go in the hand or the antecubital in these serious situations, that these are not the that these sites are suboptimal for those patients. Like that would be the teaching that I would like to be brought to be brought forth to people that are doing these procedures. And um, Nicole, speak to in Australia, are, are, the, are the people with, you know, the good skill set in the emergency department, are, do, are they doing forearm IV, like with ultrasound as a, a primary location? No, unfortunately, we really are hand and cubital fossa is the, the, the choice from our emergency department. And the forearm is, you know, obviously a fantastic spot because um, even if you're looking at those, you know, the dorsum of the hand, the real estate just to put a dressing on is, is such a challenge. So um, ideally, it would be lovely yeah. if they were selecting the forearm. In saying that, back to uh, the, the other topic about uh, blood work, typically in the emergency department with the first stick uh, peripheral IV inserted, you know, obviously you would need a 20 gauge or a, even a 22 gauge, depending on the type of catheter you're using. I think in the forearm, you would achieve, especially if you think about some of the blood work that we have to draw, especially in the eMERGE, you might need a larger cannula. A 24 or 22 might not work, again, depending on the type of catheter you're using. Here in my hospital, we use a fenestrated catheter, so we're able to draw a lot of blood work off that first stick. Uh, so location, again, in the ACF, uh, you'll probably be able to get large volumes of blood for blood sampling. Um, but, the, but the other thing is, if, if if we use the right vein or we access the right vein at the right time, you'll be able to, to deal with you know, different issues in terms of blood work on first stick and as well as infusion. So again, it, it, it's, it's the full picture of, of the patient and, and where the best place to go is depending on what they're coming in for. Sure. And um, one, one thing I want to uh, bring up about, um, you know, if we're using these, say, the dorsum of the hand again as preserving Judy's vein in the forearm for somebody that, you know, that would require that, you know what I mean? As we use the veins in the forearm, they're going to get depleted as well. So I think that going for great ultrasound guided cephalic vein in the forearm, you know, there's a place, I think there's a great place for it in the right patient. But if the, you know, if the patient's going to be getting um, an IV drawn, the decision for admission, then maybe I, you know, I wouldn't want to use that vein or patients getting a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, I may not want to use that, you know, preferred vein in the forearm, but spare it for later use. I think, you know, that goes we've been Yeah, we've been doing a lot of work um, in our local hospitals to try and stop putting a cannula in for, for blood draws. You know, if that's, if that's what happens, that's fine. But really making our um, clinicians stop and think, does this person need a cannula in the, wrong, in the long run or is it just a blood draw that they need? Um, don't put a cannula in for that purpose. So, so to try and preserve the veins. So the situation at hand, Nicole, is the patient we're not sure. It's in the emergency department, and we're not sure, you know, if they're going to go on. And we're drawing blood, so a lot of times a cannula yeah. is inserted to kill the two birds. Um, Absolutely. So we have an eighty percent certainty. If you're eighty percent certain, 
then put the cannula in. But if you, you're not certain, don't put the cannula in. So we do have this 80% marker that we use. John, you ever hear of anything like that? I think I think that's quantifying something that's, again, possibly, you know, good information. I don't know if it's been studied. Yeah, I, it, it has. I've, I've read a couple of studies um, and I think it's great um, from, again, from my background, um, normally what I'm experiencing is um, the patient comes in, the doctor hasn't seen them yet, and I'm expected to start treatment based on uh, my own assessment and protocols that are in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, if if uh, if you come in and you've got nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain, I know from my protocols and from my experience that we need to check labs, and um, we're probably going to end up giving you some pain medicine, some nausea medicine, and some fluid. So I'm 100% going to put an IV in that patient. To, to what Nicole was saying, I certainly have had patients that I thought that my assessment, I thought they probably need an IV. I put an IV in and drawn blood. The doctors come in and said, no, we're not going to do any IV uh, intervention. We're going to give sure. PO medicines and we're going to end up discharging the patient. But I, I, w- I think the 80% rule is great. I would say the opposite. I've seen more of nurses holding back and saying, I don't, I'm not going to start an IV. I'll just have the lab go in and stick them and draw blood. And then 30 minutes later, the doctor goes in and sees him and orders an IV. And now the patient got stuck twice and, and we, we damaged two different veins on this visit. So I think it's a great conversation. And we can add that to the list of all the other things that we've talked about here today that, uh, that need to be in the education for uh, IV access. Okay, this, this began with the Andy Murray uh, podcast from earlier this year. Let's end it with, with that same photograph. Two peripheral IVs in the same vein as is what appeared to he had after his hip resurfacing surgery, both in the cephalic vein on on his uh, his forehand arm for the tennis players listening, his dominant arm as as Judy pointed out, which also had a blood pressure cuff on it. Two PIVs in the same vein, yes, no, sometimes. I mean the times where the times where I've seen it, I have seen fluid leaking out. You know the proximal vein presumably from stuff that was being flushed in the, the distal vein. And those were separate. I don't know that he actually has two PIVs in the same vein, but he could. They're really pretty close. I mean, I don't think it's a good um, practice, but I don't, I don't have any more than my personal, you know, story. You know, if they weren't both in the cephalic vein, one was in the a radial vein that's deeper. There's not, or maybe a little tinier vein through there, but... If they went to the radial vein, that's deeper right next to a nerve. So that scares me even more. So I don't believe that that's a good practice. And first of all, why why have a starter vein to start the procedure and then go up uh, two inches higher for infusions? One and done. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing when we first looked at that, that photo and, and just taking back to what John was saying in the beginning in the OR perspective, why would they do that? You know, maybe one, the, the first peripheral IV would be for uh, sedation and the second one would be for IV fluids. Do, do you think that would be the case? It, you know, it's, it is a common, uh, um, it, it, it is a common anesthesia practice to um, put the patient to sleep and then put in quote, the larger lines, like say they were going to get central lines or, you know, so if you extrapolate it out, you know, for IV infusions or medication after sedation, right? Yeah. Or yeah, that would be the stability as well could be, but 
another issue another issue that anesthesia has and and we have to not sneer at this they are big on just in case because once dr ladun starts operating and his drapes are up they have limited access to the patient and if they lose an iv and they have to go in and and try to go under the drape and start an iv that's that becomes a very difficult thing especially if a patient is up on their side and in um, different holding devices to keep them from falling off the table like he would have been in that surgery. So I, I think the just-in-case conversation is, is a huge thing that we need to have with all of our health colleagues. Uh, it's very easy to say this is silly to, uh, to have this stuff. If you're an anesthesiologist and you've been in a case and you lost an IV in the middle of a case and then really the patient was at risk, while you were trying to get access again, we would probably feel differently about that. So I, I think that may also uh, be what's is part of what's going on there and in many uh, cases like that. Yeah, we have to balance vessel health and preservation with um, the harm that can come from lack of adequate vascular access. And then certainly they, they've looked at it and they've determined when the patients need two, maybe three IVs or you know central lines and stuff like that. So it's hard to argue with us you know, right. once they've established, you know, unless there's good literature, you know, literature. Well, but I agree I, yeah, wholeheartedly. I would, they need, I would say there's they need probably the not good literature for a lot of that. No, now, they need I, the access they need. Right. And I haven't, I have not lived a day in their shoes and I haven't come into that, that context. I have, however, put a lot of IVs in hairy patients and tried to keep a, a dressing that was adherent. So that's one other issue, a big issue we had with that. But as far as going into two IVs into the same vein or even very close veins, again, from a, just as we think about the mechanics of the body, we can only put so much fluid into one vein. The vein can only hold so much fluid. So you can put six large IVs into one vein. You're not going to get more fluid into that than that vein can carry. You know, it's like having... Uh, six entrances onto a highway. There's only so many cars can go down that highway. You'd be better off to have a, have an IV in another vein in another part of the body if, if you're worried about um, large volume infusives. And I think that's the conversation that I would have if, if somebody says, what's wrong with putting two IVs in the same vein? It's, it's just, it's really not going to do what I think you, what you think it's going to do for you. Yeah, with the, the clinical context of each case, should be taken on its own merit. We, you know, we don't know what position the patient was in in the OR, um, or nor what um, infusates were being transfused. Was one of them inserted on the ward preoperatively, or in the ED? Who knows? I think there's rich data in photographs, but it can be a trigger for discussion that may or may not be unfair on 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 the clinical scenario. But uh, again. You know, this is the clinical realities that exist out there. We have accepted, you know, protocols and systems in place, but in in what we see in clinical reality and in on social media sites is totally different. So there's there's definitely work to be done. Peter Carr, senior lecturer in the School of Nursing and Midwifery, National University of Ireland, Galway. I'd like to start the conversation on clippers versus shaving. So I did get a lot of feedback on the comment I made about the dressing being non-adherent because Andy Murray's hairy. He's a very furry man. And the dressings, um, boy, some of the comments we got were um, jaw-dropping. 
one of them was, you know, it's only a PIV basically and bugs can't crawl in there anyways. So who cares if the dressing doesn't stick? But the difference between a clipper and a razor, and I think we need to make sure that our colleagues out there do understand that, that the clipper rides on top of the skin. It doesn't create micro tears like a razor would. Thoughts on that from this panel? Yeah, I think that's a huge issue. And, and what I see in my practice is people don't know the difference. So in my hospital, we only have clippers or we have the devices, the single-use disposable. Uh, they, it actually looks like a razor, but the way the teeth are along the razor, it, it more clips the hair versus shaves the hair or, you know, make, makes those micro tears onto the skin. Uh, it's the skin contact with the razor that matters. And again, it's education. It's a lack of education and awareness that, first of all, you should be clipping the skin if you're not using an electronic clipper but second of all that right you know, it, it's up to, it's up to us to or or the specialists or the educators to be to to be aware of the differences and to make sure that the right products are available for the staff because really when it comes right down to it for these single-use disposable uh, non-razors i'll call them um you know that that's all they have they go to the shelf they go and grab it or it's in a kit or you know, they don't understand. And to the patient, they think that the electronic clipper, they think that's a razor. So a lot of it has to do with awareness and education. We keep coming back to that, don't we? Awareness, education, training, competencies. It's, always, it's also the language. Because when I come to a patient with, a, with my electronic clippers, they think, oh, you're going to shave my arm. Where essentially, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm using these electronic clippers, but they, they it's all in the perception and the language we use and, and maybe other people and, and the non-vascular access specialists and, and what they're saying, because absolutely you should be avoiding the razor at all costs. Agreed. I was in Judy's hometown of San Diego grounding in the intensive care unit, you know, and it's like um, they were changing a dressing. Uh, an IJ had play, been placed the night before and um, I was rounding, and the nurse was going, no, 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 stop, don't change the dressing, Dr. Ladun's here, you know what I mean? So I come, I come walking in, and there's an IV in the middle of the patient's neck, directed upward, and they're, they're changing the, direct, the dressing, and the nurse is taking out that little sterile towel that's in the dressing change kit and putting it over the naked IV, and now she's clipping the patient's hair um, on his neck. And I said, I'm going to give you a tip here. Ask them to clip the hair before they put the lines in, not afterwards. Oof. Said, <laughs> That's yeah. a great tip. Great yeah. tip, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. Uh, I, I have a shirt that, that, that uh, had on the tag, don't iron this while you're wearing it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So um, we started off this, um, this conversation um, talking about um, some simple things, and it, it turned into complex things. All this, all the conversation had merit, but just coming back to the IV and the dorsum of the hand for short procedures. If we as a group can't come to consensus or unanimity on this fairly simple topic, I don't think it bodes well for the more complex issues related to vascular access. Just as a, a philosophical um, looking at it. We should be able to come, we as quote experts, 
should be able to come to a you know an unanimous consensus on that one topic. You know, you're paraphrasing me, no? No, oh, I, I, I live to paraphrase. I live to paraphrase you. We all live um, to paraphrase, Pete. Yeah. So I, I think in general, I, I was the outlier that is that is fairly well against the dorsum, but for an outpatient procedure, for a colonoscopy, something of that sort, I'm going to live with that. I, it's a it's an hour procedure, in and out, done. My concern is that stays in after that. So I think we have general consensus on that. I'm concerned about the days after when something goes wrong with it, or they then they get admitted, and then that that IV stays there. Yeah. So I'm saying let's not do it just in case by giving them a more advanced IV just in case they have a problem. If they have a problem, you know, that's that's the outlier. We'll deal with the problem. That's how. Again, let's not put a 14 in there though, please. Maybe a 22. You're you're talking about putting a seatbelt on to drive out to the mailbox. Uh, Yeah. You just don't drive 55 down your down your driveway, right? right? Good analogy. I would like to thank Dr. Jack Ledun for listening to the I Save That podcast and speaking up to raise the vein of contention which created this episode. I would also like to thank our panelists, Jocelyn Hill, Peter Carr, Judy Thompson, Sheila Hale, Nicole Marsh, and John Bell for joining to discuss it. Please stay tuned for part two of this episode, which is set to hit your favorite streaming service next week, in which we will discuss if there is ever a time to place an IV in an awkward location on the body when we should consider a different device after a patient has endured a certain number of PIV failures, and a new metric, number of devices over number of inpatient days. Thanks, everyone. Hello again, everyone. Eric Steger, AVA Director of Communications, back with a look at upcoming AVA Network events. To close out August, join IndieVan for its full-day scientific meeting and vendor fair, which starts at 8 a.m. on Thursday, August 29th. A variety of hot topics in vascular access will be covered at this event, and just make sure that you visit the event page on the AVA calendar to register. Ozarks Van and Oak Van kick off September for the AVA Networks with local meetings on Thursday the 5th. Regina Bowen Hines takes on the question, catheters and bundles, is your team complete in Oklahoma City? While Kelly Rosenthal covers legal issues and how they affect the infusion nurse in Springfield, Missouri. Then Light Van welcomes Dr. Jack Ledun, whom you just heard on this episode of the podcast, to Pittsburgh on September 16th for a discussion on reducing collapse and the relationship between insertion, care, and maintenance. Is the dressing important? This event is totally free, so register at the Lightman website, www.light.org. And finally, Dr. P2 Devgon visits Siglerville, New Jersey, and Sojan for a conversation on reviewing approaches to blood collection on September 19th. And don't forget to register for the 2019 AVA Annual Scientific Meeting in Las Vegas. The event is scheduled for October 4th through the 7th with pre-meeting workshops on the 3rd. Make sure you visit www.avainfo.org annual to register and make sure you hurry. Rates increase after September 13th. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We want to again extend a hearty thank you to all our members of the panel who joined us for this episode and the discussion on the vein of contention. Dr. Jack Ledun, John Bell, Peter Carr, Judy Thompson, Jocelyn Hill, Nicole Marsh, and Sheila Hale. Be sure to check out episode 11 for the second half of this conversation. Thanks to our loyal listeners, and thanks as always to Dabney Coleman.
The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the Fair Use Doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.